Hey everyone, it's Aaron. I'm excited to share today's important episode with you, but I first want to point out a very quick warning that there are discussions of sexual assault and the trauma faced by survivors throughout this episode. So listener discretion is advised. Thanks again for listening. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Every 73 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted in the United States. And with this type of crime, the victim's body is, amid the trauma of the experience, part of the crime scene. When the victim reports the assault, evidence is often collected and preserved in a sexual assault evidence kit, commonly referred to as a rape kit. The DNA evidence then collected can be a powerful tool to solve and prevent crime, but to accomplish these things, they must be tested. Currently, it is estimated that hundreds of thousands of rape kits sit untested. Today's guest, Antia Wegman, is out to address these challenges. As the founder of Margo, a kit designed to provide care for patients without being overwhelmed or confusing, she endeavors to provide a better solution to help sexual assault survivors get the help they need and the justice they deserve. Antia, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. Well, I appreciate you spending time with us today. And like so many people on our show, this is a second job for you, but probably the most important job for you. So I know that time is precious, so I appreciate it. I just want to go back to what I said in the intro, and I think we should start there. Hundreds of thousands of rape kits sit untested. I remember when I read this intro and I was thinking about it, I was shocked. I was more than surprised, and I'm sure I'm not alone. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And that's probably one of the bases for the forming of the nonprofit and the product that you created. That was actually the first fact that I learned about the Rape Kid. And this project really began as a master's thesis project. And so when I was trying to think about what kind of topic I wanted to begin with, it was a design master's. So it's a bit different. And I heard that fact actually, I think on the radio where they were talking about these untested rape kits. They were explaining, I think they even had some survivors that were telling their story and how traumatizing it was for them that they weren't being tested. And so as a designer and starting to understand products, just hearing that there were thousands and thousands of untested rape kits, to me signaled that this has to be a problem with the kit. And I think that there are multiple reasons why the kits aren't tested. I think part of it for sure is the design of the kit. There's also, of course, the cost of testing. But I think one of the biggest barriers is that the sexual assault and the rape kits themselves are still seen as society as something that is less important. Victims are still treated as if they aren't victims. They're still not believed. The perpetrators are believed. And I think we've seen this more and more in media. We've seen this a little bit as the Me Too shift has happened. But a lot of the problem is with just the society not seeing these victims to be real victims, and then therefore not seeing their kits as something that's important. So the individuals, if you can just walk me through and walk our listeners through the process. So let's say they're not using your kit, but they're using a kit that may or may not be provided at a hospital or a clinic, or I don't know if it's at a police station. What happens after the kit is actually used? Shouldn't it go to a lab in theory and then get tested and then the results then reported? Like, where's the disconnect? Where's the breakdown there? 
So it's actually extremely complicated and probably more complicated than you already think. So there's no standardized process and there's no standardized kit. So every jurisdiction is different, meaning it might be different in New York City and then it might be different in Albany. And so what happens is that let's say that the victim will get the kit and then it's transferred either to the hospital or whoever is next in chain in custody. From there, it will either get tested or it will sit in a warehouse, but it isn't necessarily that simple. So as a victim, you can get a test and then you can choose not to report it. So there's actually a bit of consent as well in some of the kits that aren't tested. So if a victim gets the kit right away, but they are too afraid to report, but they think they might want to report at some time, that kit is going to be stored. If someone specifically wants to report it and they want to test it, that's where I think the bigger problem lies in that. I don't know if you've seen it, but there was even a documentary that Mariska Hargate, I think I butchered her name. No, you got it right. Law and Order. Yeah, that is called I Am Evidence on HBO. And it really investigates this problem in much more detail. But even in, I believe it was outside of Detroit, but it's, I believe in Michigan, they even found these like, large warehouses of kits that were like abandoned warehouses, like where like rain comes in the building of kits. So it's like in the sense where someone says that they do want to report it and then it is stored. That's like where a lot of the problems have come into light or they simply just choose not to test them, even if they are stored in a secure place. So it's confusing in the fact that a lot of people think, oh, well, they should just broadly test all of them. And in some cases, it is actually a consent issue that they aren't testing them. However, a lot of states have really, who have done a lot of research on this, do agree that there can be some sort of component where there should be an option, for example, for victims to allow their kids to be tested anonymously, or maybe you keep the results still within their case. But then the biggest part about testing is it can help find serial rapists. So if we're not testing these kids, we're still allowing all of the serial rapists to walk on the streets without any sort of consequences. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, because it would seem to me that getting it tested right could hopefully prevent the next rape, the next sexual assault. So now enter Margot. I should say this used to be called RN Advocate. You just changed the name. Why did you change the name to Margot? Well, I think this began as a school project and with a limited time and limited branding, our names that we create in school are not always necessarily translatable into real life. And so I think it made sense at the time because it, this was really focusing on improving the experience for the healthcare providers as well. But as this has shifted and grown as a product, it really is dually important for both the healthcare provider and the survivor. And Margot really came into play because of the inventor of the rape kit, Martha Goddard. And I'd actually been working with a New York Times journalist who was really trying to dig up a lot of information on her and then was able to and recently released this incredible article in the New York Times about Martha Goddard and her journey and how she really was this pioneer of the rape kit. She fought so hard for sexual assault victims And the credit of the kid ended up really going to her male forensic partner and was often even called the Vitulo kid. And she sort of, like many 
women and like many sexual assault victims sort of got pushed aside. And so after reading this incredible article and really just feeling like, yes, this kit needs to be redesigned, but at the same time, it's incredible that it even exists in the first place that this woman really pioneered this and fought so hard to really sort of honor her. And so the name is really just a combination of her name and a nod to her. Even though I know it's very defining and it is what it sounds like it is, I've always felt like even the phrase rape kit was a little harsh and intimidating. So your background, you're an industrial designer or a designer? A a product digital designer more than industrial, but with an industrial design training. But you live in this world of form and function and design. And I get that. And I'm always so impressed with people who come out of the design world, whether it's product or industrial, because you guys are just wired differently and brilliantly. So I appreciate that. Just walk me through the kit and how it overcomes some of the obstacles that we talked about, both in form, function, design, accessibility, reportability, all those things. So I would say that the kit itself, there again, isn't a standard current kit. So they're different in every state, but they typically right now contain say a cardboard box and about 10 to 15 envelopes inside them that have say like different swabs, glass slides that you would then put DNA on. So these different tools for collecting evidence. And to learn about the kit, I quickly learned like there's no way that I can just go up to a victim or a survivor and say like, hey, what was your kit like? Because it's such a sensitive topic. I figured the only way that I'm actually going to be able to learn about this is to become a sexual assault advocate. So I became an advocate at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. And what that means is when there aren't any social workers or staff on call, so basically between 6 p.m. and 8 a.m. every night, and then on weekends, advocates are called in whenever there's an assault to help guide the victim through the process. And so that's sort of where I found my big insights on all of the problems with the kid. So I was experiencing a victim who was getting the kid and a nurse came in to collect the evidence. And at this point, I learned a lot about how the kits are really meant to be for what's called a sane nurse or a sexual assault nurse examiner who go through training and they know exactly what to do. They know the importance of collecting evidence. But the majority of these kits are collected by emergency room nurses and doctors who've never seen the kits before. Because I think it's only about 13% of hospitals in the country that have sane nurses. So they're very rare. And what I saw was this nurse had really put out all of the steps and was ready to start collecting evidence. And she really could barely even get through step one because the instructions are so incredibly dense. They're so confusing that even for me, who was this like unpaid advocate who's just sort of like a support system there. She kept asking me like, what does this mean? And so it would say things like, take the sheet out of the envelope, have the victim step on it and collect evidence. And you're like, wait, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Step on it. it. And then it was like, and then put the sheet on top. And then you're like, wait, which sheet goes where? And it was like, it's like that for 15 steps. So you can imagine as a healthcare provider trying to read through this information, figure it out, seem confident, but then also help your patient who 
has been through trauma, you want to show them empathy, you want to make sure they're okay, it becomes this like huge cognitive overload. And essentially what happens is these exams end up taking sometimes 10 hours. And that's not including the hours and hours that the victims are waiting in the emergency room. So it's really an overall very unpleasant experience for both ends. And so learning that insight and like being there firsthand and even watching the nurse say things like, hey, do you want to do step 13? It's a little invasive. And this victim, this whole entire time has been sitting on her phone trying to distract herself. She has no idea what that means. She doesn't know if she should say yes or no. She doesn't know if it's, is it going to affect her evidence if she says no? Does she just say yes to get it over? Like she has no information to go off of. So these were sort of the basis for the redesign of the kit was first, how do we make it easier for the healthcare provider to navigate through? So that is a redesign of the instructions using graphics, decision trees that help people say like, hey, if there hasn't been an oral assault, you don't need to take an oral swab or vice versa. And really just making it easier for them so that they can provide more empathy towards their patient. And then on the second side of that is introducing an app that allows the survivor to follow along in real time and sort of like a, almost like a, the way that you might watch a fitness video where you can see exactly what's going to happen. If the nurse or doctor happens to still be kind of stuck, even then the survivor can be like, Hey, actually like you do this. And that's something that has in research shown to be extremely important is letting the survivor take control of their exam letting them swab themselves wherever they can. And so really kind of like bringing the survivor into the exam and the evidence collecting experience when right now they're really just left in the dark. Wow. So I have so many questions and I don't, we don't have that much time to the uninitiated. And I consider myself and probably thousands of others. I thought it was a couple swabs here and there and that's it. I thought it was 20, 30 minutes. But to say now that there's 15 steps and it could be up to 10 hours and that the healthcare professional, not only is there a dearth of healthcare professionals who are qualified, these sane nurses that you're talking about to actually conduct this, but they themselves aren't properly, not all of them, and I'm not casting aspersion on them. It sounds like training is a huge problem. Absolutely. And then you have to remember that right now, these are mostly done in the emergency room, which means that a lot of these healthcare providers have a ton of other people and a ton of other pressure that they're also thinking about. So it's really a huge burden on everyone. And oftentimes a victim has also been physically harmed and abused in other ways. So they're also getting care and treatment either concurrently or before or after, and it's hard to prioritize. And that's confusing and overwhelming for everybody, the healthcare professionals, as well as the victim. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So where is this kit currently available and how did you get it into the hands of healthcare practitioners? Because that's not easy for anything, let alone what we're talking about right now. So it's not currently available because it is going to be a long journey for it to be available. I'm working with different researchers and healthcare providers, but because this is evidence and because this is primarily decided by a lot of the cities. It's a process that is going to take a lot of time to get everyone on board with. So the goal, especially now with COVID, is that 
these don't necessarily always have to be in the ER. Like, are there ways that we can even distribute these kits with telehealth, which has become much more popular with sexual assault and was very controversial, I'd say, before COVID. And so there are different ways that we're really working to figure out ways to move this faster and to get it more available to more people. But it's definitely going to be a difficult process. Is this something that I assume needs to be FDA approved or get clearance? Not approval, but clearance? I don't think it will actually because it's not a medical product and it's we're not looking to change the actual contents. It's more about the experience and really making it easier to use, bringing the survivor into the process as well. It's not technically a medical product. And how long have you been working as an advocate? So I did that for a year. There was a bit of a hiatus with COVID. And so since then, I haven't been back in the hospital. But it was an incredible experience. So my assumption is with COVID, and I haven't seen any numbers yet, and I think it's probably too soon, and I'm kind of scared to look, but there had been enough speculation by people who are experts to say that sexual violence, sexual assault, rape, domestic violence, in addition to increased drug dependencies, et cetera, the list goes on, will rise just because of the constrained living conditions, as well as the reprioritization of healthcare professionals and law enforcement during COVID. Have you anecdotally seen any evidence of that when it comes to sexual assault, rape, abuse? I'm sure that the rates are much higher. I think the difficulty is that reporting is already so low that we're probably not going to know how bad it really is for quite some time because many people are going to choose not to report. I know that different colleges and campuses have varying degrees of students back full-time in dorms, et cetera, but sexual assault and rape on campus, I mean, sadly, it's everywhere, but I do know it's a huge issue on campuses, college campuses. I wonder if that isn't a place to start with regards to getting a foothold, advocacy, the level of activism, especially among young people, is never been higher, thank goodness. And I'm just wondering if that's an interesting or another place to start once you can get this into the market. Yeah, definitely. I think universities are so important and it's definitely been an area of interest. I think especially every university has their own different policies in terms of how they handle these situations. Some places really require you to go to your local police and they don't hold any sort of criminal internal procedures. So I think it's an interesting area to explore and especially to explore ways that these universities can better interact with their cities. Because often if you're just telling someone go to the city and they're a student and they might not feel comfortable with it, they may feel much more comfortable at their universities. It's certainly an interesting area. Have you funded this all on your own? I mean, is this like kind of a self-driven thing? I've been raising money, so yes, but not with my own money. But it's been a project that is looking to continue to be funded. And do you have a website or any something where you can tell our listeners where they can go to either contribute their time, ideas, or money? Yeah, so it's margokit.com. Okay. That's good that you got that URL. I'm not sure how you manage that, actually. <laughs> that's like the hardest part. Lots of Margos, not many Margo kits. So. True, true. I'm just thinking, I had this amazing guest named Claire Coder from Ant Flow, 
just a few months ago. And her mission has changed since COVID, but she basically felt that hygiene products, especially targeted towards women, were not as accessible as they should be and freely accessible. And why do you have to pay for them? And why is there a surcharge on them? So she worked with universities like Princeton and Stanford and big tech like Google to get dispensers to be able to have tampons and pads available to everyone. So I need to connect you with her. And I'm wondering if you don't try to connect with a digital health platform like Hims and Hers to see whether or not there's an opportunity there. Full disclosure, they're a client of ours, incredible company. They're only three, four years old and doing very well in part because of the pandemic, in part because digital health has become more virtual than ever before, but they are also focused on sensitive areas and topics. Not all necessarily have to be related to aesthetic, but core issues affecting men and women. So anyway, just a couple of kind of quick thoughts, but I'm happy to make those introductions and you've heard it here. So because it's public, I'm telling you, I'm going to make those introductions. I love it. <laughs> and you talk about part of your inspiration in creating Margot is to help survivors get the justice they deserve. I'm going to be very positive here. I think what you're doing, I know it's hard, but everything that's worth it is hard. If it was easy, it would have been done and we wouldn't be here talking to you. You'd be onto something else. But let's just assume that this will successfully be introduced into the marketplace. And this is a product that is, I hate to call it a product because it's not a product, but it is something that can be life-changing. How do you think it'll help facilitate on the justice side of things as well? Yeah, so that's a really important question. And I think there are two parts to it. So I think the first is that for many of these survivors, just doing something and just getting a kit is really important to them. What happens to it after varies differently, but it's sort of like this first action of like taking control of what happened to you. And so the way that I saw it was the fact that this experience is so difficult to even figure out how to do, but then also is traumatizing in itself is really such an injustice in its own. And I always compare it to you break your arm and you go to the doctor and you get a cast. Like there are so many things you get cancer, you get chemotherapy. Like to me, it's just sort of like a no brainer. Like, why don't we have a better system set up for these survivors? It's not fair. It's clearly unjust. So I think that's the first part of it. And then the second part is, of course, right now, someone is sexually assaulted every 73 seconds, as you mentioned. That's here in the US. I spoke in South Africa. In South Africa, it's every 24 seconds. So it's a global problem. It's worse in certain places, but it still exists. It, there's still very little help. And the saddest part is that in the US, less than 1% of any of these cases end in a conviction. So clearly the system isn't working. Clearly these kits that are meant to provide evidence and often do, don't hold up and they don't bring them justice. And so we're working really hard to figure out what are those gaps, especially once it does make it to court, that we can make stronger so that that less than 1% can increase as much as it can. And I think part of that immediately is that we are integrating tracking. So part of the app that the survivor uses 
And then also part of the actual kit is scanning and tracking. And some states have incorporated it and have added it, but it isn't really a fully holistic and thought through system. And to just give a survivor the opportunity to see where their kit is in the same way that you'll know where your package is that you ordered is also part of helping them seek the justice that they need. So if a survivor knows that their kit has been sitting in a warehouse for four days, they can actually do something about it. Whereas right now, the majority of them have no idea what happened to it. And if they want to find out, they have to jump through all of these hurdles. So it's definitely a multi-tiered process, but we're really working as hard as we can to try to find out all of the pieces that will help bring them the justice that they do deserve. It's multifaceted, like you said, and it's complicated. And it's far more complicated than I thought 27 minutes ago. It sounds like there's a big policy component to this as well. Like I did not realize that not only does it vary, say, from Manhattan to Brooklyn to Albany, but it's state to state. There's no national policy. There's no real standard or protocol. And each hospital probably follows a different protocol as well. Exactly. So there's work to be done there. Do you envision that at some point this could be something that is at someone's home that they could use, God forbid, but it's there just kind of as a, not a preventative measure, but just something that every woman should have something like this available to them, sadly, but available to them if they need it. So they don't have to, because not everybody, as you know, goes to the hospital, not everybody reports either right away. And I know there's a different there's statute of limitations and I'm not a lawyer, but it's complicated. But I'm wondering if there's also a level of agency or empowerment if you're able to do this at home or not in a hospital environment. I mean, absolutely. The ideal state and sort of the dream is that there are multiple options like there is for anything. Like if you need to get a pregnancy test as a woman, you have options. You can buy one. You can go into a facility. And so I think it's important to provide survivors with those options. I think that there is a lot to be worked out in terms of it is evidence. It isn't a medical product. So how do we ensure that the evidence, if they do collect it on their own, is admissible in court? Is that possible? Is it possible in every city? It becomes very complicated. I think it would be fantastic if that could be worked out and it could be more accessible and available to survivors. But then I think there is an important component, which is when I did speak to survivors, is remembering that also a lot of them don't want to do it themselves. Like you break your arm, you don't want to fix it yourself. You want care and you want help. And so I think that at the end of the day, there should be options. If you do want to do it yourself, that's great. But if you also want to get help, you should be able to also do that without either one of those options being as overwhelming as they are now. I hadn't really thought about the whole chain of custody thing, like you said, and what is and isn't admissible. And the last thing you want to do, obviously, is provide evidence that is not supported through the legal lens. Exactly. So that's where I've thought a lot about, I think, in many ways, what is more important than having it be something a survivor does themselves is really having it be a service. There shouldn't be a reason why a survivor can't call a sane nurse and say, I would like to book an appointment, come to me, collect the evidence from me, wherever they feel safe. And that's a similar thing. And they're not having to go to a facility or they're not having to go to an emergency room. 
if they choose. Or maybe it's a partnership with a large pharmacy chain where they're committed to having sane nurses trained in different locations at a CVS or a Walgreens. And that's not necessarily as intimidating. Exactly. I guess timing is there's a component. There's a certain amount of hours, if not minutes, that you have in order to be able to collect evidence. Because after a while, there is no more evidence. Right. And that's a whole or it's compromised. that I think is so part of like the fact that there isn't transparency into this is that typically the evidence isn't as good if you have showered or if you've used the bathroom. And those are probably the two things you want to do after an assault. And so it's trying to figure out ways to make it easier for people to also learn those facts and those information if they do choose to end up getting a kit. But I think we've talked a lot about making this something that is easy to use for medical providers, that it can be available at a minute clinic, that if you still want to get help, you don't have to go to the emergency room. You can go to a clinic that's not going to go through all of the sign-in process and you can, and it's more accessible. It might be on your block. You don't have to travel far. So I think those are all really important aspects of the new kit. So listen, Antia, it's great having you on. I wish we could be talking about a different topic, but this is a very important one. And I appreciate you educating me and our listeners and others. This is far more complex than I think I even ever thought. And I didn't realize too the gaps and the need state and the process itself. I had no idea. So I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate doing everything that you're doing. And I think I said it earlier, but most people who come on the show, this is not their only job. This is a very important purpose-driven side passion project. And I appreciate that the waking hours that you spend not working or being with family and friends and loved ones is helping others in need. And I just appreciate that because there should be more people who have that capacity to give and the empathy and the compassion for others. So thank you for that. If no one's saying thank you enough, I'm saying thank you publicly to you. And offline, let's figure out how we can get you connected with a few other potential resources for partnerships and or funding so we can make a difference together. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for bringing this topic to light and for hearing more about it. It's definitely a complicated issue and I'm hoping at the very least to bring more awareness to it. Well, I wish you the best of luck and I hope that we can be part of that luck and make it more of a reality. Thanks again. Thank you. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quipkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.